if you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. And what an immense, I can't, I, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were, you were, you were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You'd never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You, never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and yet, and yet you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. Well, you know, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor ranger. So we just a few questions for you. First of all, are you are you are you are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> Guys, I've never heard of it in my life. And and what about? Uh, let's just go to the doctrine of scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, "On on what basis are you here?" And he said, "The man on the middle cross said, I can come." <laughs> now, now. That's the, that is the only answer. Believe me, it probably would have been much better just to listen to that entire sermon than me get up. Alistair Begg is a gun of a preacher. Um, if you haven't heard him before, look him up. There's some fantastic ministry that he has online. The man on the middle cross said I could come. That's what I want you to take from that illustration, though. Um, we are partway getting towards the end of a series um, which we call Behold, which is based on a book written by a guy by the name of Justin Hoffman. Um, he wrote this book, uh, Behold, and the subtitle is An Invitation to Wonder. And I hope, as you've been following along with us, that that has been your experience, that as we have stopped to trace the word behold, what is it that we are meant to stop and pause and look at about our great God, um, that it has been for you an invitation to wonder at our salvation. And that's been my prayer. I'd love it if you could join me in praying now as we open up the scriptures again, that God would meet with us and encourage our hearts. Father, thank you. Thank you that in Christ we might know salvation. And I thank you that we have not only an invitation, but a command that this is what should fill our attention, that this is what should fill our wonder, um, that we are enraptured by a God who loves sinners and did something about it. And so, Lord, this morning, meet with us again in your mercy and by your spirit and through your word this morning, for Jesus' sake, for his glory. Amen. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 is the key text that I want you to focus in on this morning. I'd love it if you grab your Bibles and open it up. Um, if you don't have your Bible with you, that's fine. 
Um, you can use your phone. Just throw your phone onto airplane mode or silent or something like that so you don't get distracted by all the other notifications um, about the life that you're missing out on. That's what notifications generally do for us. Tell us about all the things that we don't have. Ask us to look at something else where, in fact, this morning, Jesus is saying to you, I want you to behold something even better. All right? So look at your phone. That's fine. Just try to ignore the distractions. Um, if you don't have either of those, then shuffle along a seat or two. Someone near you will have a Bible. I'd really love you to read these words and see them for yourself. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. Just the second half of the verse really is what I want you to focus in on. And in the English Standard Version, it says this. Behold, there's our word. It's going to show up twice in this verse, in this little phrase. Behold, now is the favourable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Right? Let's read it again. Behold, now is the favourable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation of salvation. It is such good news that we're told to behold it twice. Now, it's one thing really to talk about salvation, it's to talk about it in maybe even abstract terms or theoretical terms. We can understand aspects of it. In fact, you can spend a lifetime studying all the things that make up how God can save sinners. What are the legal requirements that God must meet? What are the requirements about his own holiness that he must not break? How is it that people who are rebellious to God can receive the free gift of salvation? There's lots of theoretical, um, theological aspects to this, but I want you to know that the verse that we just read in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, doesn't ask us to theorize about it, it asks us to behold it. To stop and to wonder at it. And that's what I am praying we can do this morning. To just simply stand in awe and give it the attention that it deserves that we are living in a favourable time, a day of salvation. Alright? And I'm going to do that in three ways this morning. I want to talk about the simplicity of our salvation I want to talk about the sufficiency of our salvation. We'll explain that. And I couldn't think of another word that started with S. And so why uh, drive a square peg into a round hole? I really want to finish off by talking about the urgency of our salvation. All right. So the simplicity of our salvation, the sufficiency of our salvation and the urgency. Three ways that I think we can sort of stand and almost spin, spin the sort of the topic, the uh, the miracle of salvation and look at it in three different ways and hopefully gaze at it and hear God's invitation to wonder at it this morning and quite possibly in this room right now there could be someone's eternal destiny altered in this moment. Amen. All right, the simplicity of our salvation is I want you to, the first facet, the first side of this wonderful, amazing miracle that God rescues sinners, God saves sinners. Remember, now is the favourable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. All right, so you're in 2 Corinthians already. You're in chapter 6. I want you to go back a chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I want you to focus in on just one verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. 
the simplicity of our salvation. Keep that in mind. That's what we're looking at here. Verse 17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I love the fact that we've heard already this morning, I think Aileen, you said when you got up and shared with us, this is not about something that is only sort of like, you know, if I can just get through to the finish line, then all this eternal life stuff is going to happen, right? I love the fact that you, you were struck by that and you reminded of that this morning. This is not, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he will be a new creation. He is a new creation. This is now. This is present tense, right? That's not where the sentence finishes, though, or the verse finishes. It says, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is the simplicity of our salvation. Um, I grew up hearing old school preachers and... um, They used to say incredibly weighty and lofty things that I simply just wanted to sit in the back and play with matchbox cars and ignore that. But some of it, some of it filtered down into my thick little mind. One of the things that I can remember hearing over and over when I was a little boy was that the gospel is simple enough for a child to understand and deep enough to explore for a lifetime. You can wade into the shallows of the gospel, of the good news of salvation, and everything that it has for you can be found in the shallows. And you can deep dive into it for a lifetime. You will never find the bottom of it. Right? And I think this is what this idea captures. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. It is as simple as that. This morning, new creations, not just renovations... Um, I've been driving past simply because of all the traffic at the moment. Thanks, Taro. Um, All the traffic that's been trying to get around the problems on the highway, and they've been using Raymond Terrace as their convenient bypass, right? Um, And so because of that, I've been finding new ways home between this building and my home late in the afternoon when the traffic's backed up in every direction on all the main routes. And on my little uh, exploration of Back Street's home, I've been driving past a house that has been uh, incrementally torn down. Um, they are tearing it down. It's a knockdown, rebuild job, I'm assuming. Someone's bought a block of land, the house they don't want, they're completely demolishing it, they're going to build something new there. Um, I've never undertaken a project like that. I usually take on projects of renovation. You know, that's where you sort of take what's already there and you try to fix it up. It's a fixer-upper, right? God has not done that with his children. God, God's not a fixer-upper. You know, where there are a few sort of fundamental errors, but he just puts at least a new lick of paint on it, makes it look a bit shinier to the world. In fact, that's a game that we play with our Christianity, isn't it? Where we're just trying to keep a fresh coat of varnish on so that we can walk into a building like this and look at each other and say, I'm doing fine. (laughs) But that's not what God's called us to. Not called us to just a fixer-upper. He's not called us to a fresh coat of varnish. God is in the business of making new things. A new creation. 
And that happens, he says, when we are found in Christ. There's not a long list of prerequisites to that. When we are found in Christ, Paul says, you're a new creation. You're not just like, you know, Chris version 1.2. You are not you, but just slightly polished up. You're a new thing. You're a new man, a new woman, a new child. When you are found in Christ. The old has passed away. Done. Now, I get it, because I I have this battle within my own head all the time. If that's true, then why am I struggling so much with things that are from my old life? Yeah, look, that's another big subject, but I want you to hear this one. This is what I want you to behold. We're asked to behold in... Chapter 5, verse 17 as well, was meant to just sort of gaze in wonder at this. This is part of the miracle. Yes, we are struggling with aspects of our old nature. The flesh still has an influence in us. There's still a battle that wages war with us every single day as Christians. But when God looks at us in Christ, He looks at us and He says, You are brand new. Everything about your old life is gone. It's done. It has been nailed to the cross. It has been paid for. It is eradicated in God's eyes. This is the wonder and the miracle that we are meant to behold. The old is gone. The new has come. You are a new person in Christ. It's a lot to take in, I know. It's a lot to believe. Really? Am I really a new person? All I can do is tell you what God is saying. Yes, you are. In Christ, you are new. The old has gone. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That is the simplicity of our salvation. That is the gospel message in a nutshell. That is us wading into the shallows, as it were, and being overwhelmed by God's grace. A new life has come. And it's found in Christ. We do not need to. In fact, I would say we must not overcomplicate the good news of salvation. It's bad for our soul to jump through hoops that we don't need to. It's certainly bad for our soul and it's bad for our listeners if we present a gospel that is super complicated to the world. It's just this. The middle cross... The man that hung there, he said I could come, right? So that's the simplicity of our salvation. Let's spin it slightly and look at the second facet. The simplicity of our salvation and the second thing was the sufficiency of our salvation. It's a slightly complicated word, but it started with S. It simply means it's enough. It's enough. Our salvation is enough. As Alistair Begg said, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That was enough. Have a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You're already there, but have a look at verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. The sufficiency, the enoughness of our salvation. All right, you got it? 
I'm going to read this one from the Christian Standard Bible. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This verse is called the Great Exchange. He made the one who did not know sin. Who's that? Who is the one who did not know sin? Because every, every person since Adam and Eve um, enacted their rebellion against God, believed a lie opposed to the truth of what God had said, who hoped in something else apart from the favour and promise of God, every single other person born from that day to the to the child born a second ago, has experienced and known sin. They've known what it means to be a part of a, a human race who is in acted rebellion against God. That's what it means to know sin. But this verse says, He made the one who did not know sin. There's only been one, and it's God's own Son. It's Jesus, right? That's the, that was the whole central tenet of our salvation. We needed someone perfect. We needed someone not like us. But someone who could re represent us. Someone who could stand in our place. Not as fallen, not as broken, not as fractured, not in rebellion, but a perfect man. A man the way that all men and women should have been. We needed someone who could stand in our place and say, this is what it means to righteously fulfill the law of God. We needed someone who did not know sin to be our saviour. But look what happens in this verse. He, this God, made the one who did not know sin, that's his son, Jesus, here is the great injustice, as we look at it from our human perspective, of the gospel. Someone perfect, someone completely righteous, someone who did not deserve the punishment that was coming for sin, they became sin for us. He who made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. I'm reminded of that scene just before Jesus goes to the cross. He has been dragged before the religious officials of his day to sort of answer for the, the crimes of blasphemy and how he's incited rebellion amongst the Jewish people. Of course, the Jewish leaders were not allowed to, um, they were not allowed to sort of pass a sentence that was a Roman sentence. The Romans were the occupiers, political occupiers of the nation at the time. And so they had to then sort of pass their sentence and then take him across to the Roman officials. And so their desire was that the Romans would say, well, let's crucify this guy. And so there was another sort of trial, another investigation into Jesus as a criminal. Do you remember what Pilate said at the end of his little discussion that he has with Jesus. He questions him, he talks with him. 
He comes out and shrugs his shoulders to the, the religious. He goes, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with this guy. He hasn't done anything. Certainly not worthy of crucifixion. And they implore him. They, they pressure him and eventually he caves. And he washes his hands of it all and he says, oh, you deal with it. It's even a, even a Roman who didn't know anything about God could look at Jesus' life and just go, look, he hasn't done anything worthy of death. He didn't realise just how deep those words were meant to go. It wasn't just a superficial thing that he was talking about. We know that there's something deep under that, that the one who did not know sin would actually be made to be sin. Why? For us. He carried our sin. Why? The rest of the verse says it. So that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And that's why this verse is called the great exchange. There are two people, two subjects in this phrase. There's Jesus and there's us. And they both carry something. They both have something that belongs to them. Jesus has righteousness. Righteousness simply means, in its most basic form, a right standing before God. So that when God looks at someone with righteousness, he looks at them and says, yes, you are right with me. Jesus had that. He had the ability to stand before God and God simply say, you're right with me. Jesus, in fact, God the Father said it multiple times. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus had righteousness. We, we stand in the same picture. What do we have? We have a fist full of broken dreams and failures and shame and wrap them all together and put a pretty bow on it and you call it sin. That's what we have. The great exchange says this. We gave, we walked up to Jesus and we gave him our present our package, and we said, this is for you, Jesus. You have all of my sin. And he took his righteousness and he said, I'll take your sin. In return, I'll give you my righteousness. It's a pretty one-sided exchange, isn't it? It is. How is that fair? certainly isn't from a human perspective, you ever watch kids at Christmas time opening up presents, weighing up how fair the present giving exercise has been? When you're really young, fairness is best represented by the volume of the package. How big is the present? There's very little understanding of worth or value, monetary value or sentimental value attached to a certain object. It's just simply, but his is bigger than mine. It's unfair. It's bigger, right? She got a bigger one than I did. That's not fair. This whole sort of sense of equality in gifts is hardwired into us as humans, right from when we were children. Even as we get older, we have just more sophisticated ways of doing the same thing. Is this fair? 
Let me tell you, from our perspective, the great exchange is not fair. How is it fair that Jesus should get all of our sin and then God say, oh, hang on, you're now sinful in my sight and must be punished. And we, who were the perpetrators of that sin, get to stand there and God looks at us and says, oh, in Christ, you're now righteousness, you're right. From a human perspective, it seems completely unfair, but it's what God was able to do in his righteousness and his justice to simply say, your salvation is complete. It's simple, but it's sufficient. You have everything that is required in Christ. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might receive, we might become the righteousness of God. As I said, the word sufficiency simply means enough. What God has done for you and for I is enough. There's not something else that we need to add to it. There's not something else to what Jesus did at the cross that needs to be supplemented in some other way. That exchange covers everything. All we require, all you require this morning for salvation is the great exchange that was secured for us in Christ at the cross. There's no need to add to it. Again, I love that illustration that Alistair Begg uses. He told the story of that thief on the cross who had lived his entire life in rebellion against God, it would seem. Whatever choice he made in life led him to a point where he was actually in rebellion against Rome, where he was seen to be a criminal. In fact, even hanging on the cross, he and the, guy, the other guy on the other side of Jesus, both of them hurling abuse, even in their death, hurling abuse towards Jesus until eventually one of them, his eyes are open to something that he'd never seen before in his entire life. And he saw Jesus for who Jesus truly was, who he truly is. And all he said, have you ever read that story? All he said... Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. Now, in that one statement, there's simplicity of the gospel. And in that one statement, there's a sufficiency of the gospel. Lord, remember me. That man threw himself on the mercy of God. He had no chance to turn over a new leaf. You ever thought about that? He he didn't have a time to bargain with God. If you take me down from this cross, I promise I'm going to be a better man for the rest of my days. He didn't have time to do that. He didn't have time to to make uh, intellectual statements with God. He didn't have time to sort of understand or go to a core group. (laughs) He just simply said, Jesus, I'm yours Please remember me. And Jesus' statement to him, today, you will, you will be with me in paradise. That simple statement of calling out to Jesus, that's enough. Why? Because Jesus is enough. What he has done is enough. There's no need to add to it. So we have the simplicity of our salvation. We have the 
sufficiency of our salvation. And the last thing I want you to see is there is an urgency to our salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting from verse 20, I'm going to read a shorter, uh, more than just one verse, just a, a short passage which is going to finish up at our key verse in chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, we also appeal to you. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at an acceptable time, I listened to you, and in the day of salvation, I, I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time, the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. You see, in Christ, God's grace has been made known. We know now that we have a God who has done everything required, simply but sufficiently to rescue people just like us, just like the man on the cross that was hanging next to Jesus. God's grace has been made known. This is the day of God's favour. That's what we're meant to behold. Behold, this is the favourable time, the acceptable time. That's what we're meant to perceive and, and almost pause and be in awe at. This is how God rescues people. He rescues them through Christ. He rescues them through a Jesus who would take all of your sin and say, I will deal with that. And in return, I will give you my right standing with God. That's a favourable time for you and I to live in. In fact, if we'd been born in different generations, in centuries and millennia ago, maybe back in the time of Isaiah or Jeremiah or one of the ancient prophets of Israel, these are the guys that sort of saw little glimpses into the fact that God was doing something amazing, that he was preparing something to change the entire world. And they were desperately trying to get a grasp of what that might be, longing for the day that they might see it, even when Jesus was born. He was taken to the temple just as a few days old. And there were a, a, an old man and an old lady in the temple, remember? And they said, oh, we have been longing for this day, our eyes have finally seen the salvation of our God. You and I live in a favourable time where the message of salvation is readable, where it's easily heard, where we are reminded of it, where there are songs sung about it, where we can meet with each other. We're in a favourable time. We are. And that favourable time is because we have been, we've seen, we've, we've been exposed to, we can respond to the fact that we have a God who saves and that his offer of salvation is right now. That's why it says, not only behold, we live in a favourable time, but behold, this is the day of salvation. Now, if you know Jesus already this morning, 
If that's something that you've seen, that you've beheld, God's salvation towards you, not just theoretically, not just towards your family, not just because this is where you've come for many years, but right now you've seen, I know that Jesus died for me. That when he took sin to the cross, I was standing there giving him mine. And he didn't judge me for it. He didn't reject me for it. Instead, he gave me a gift back, the gift of righteousness. If you know that, then praise God, right? But this urgency still carries weight for us because there's an urgency that Paul says, listen, we're ambassadors for Christ. How could you not know this urgent, wonderful story of salvation and not feel the urgency to let other people know? What about my neighbor? Do they know this? What about my work colleague? Are they they aware of what a favorable time it is? What a great gift there is in God's salvation. Do they know this? The urgency is there. There's also an urgency that comes if you have never beheld Jesus as your saviour. There's an urgency in that statement that says, behold, now is the favourable time and behold, now is the day of salvation. There is an urgency in that because that also means that one day it won't be a favourable time and it won't be the day of salvation for you. So the urgency says, don't lose today. You've been given it. Our brother Matthew Stowe's, we're going to celebrate his life. I'll have the honour of sharing a few thoughts as we gather together at his funeral tomorrow. Um, he, uh, he, not long before he died, um, I met with him and we... When I say die, that's a really final word. He's not dead. He's more alive than any of us are at the moment. Not long before he moved away, um, he and I sat together and he reminded me of um, something that happened years ago. And the way he remembers it is not exactly the way I remember it. He, he told me a story that he said, do you remember, Chris, that time when you said that you were going to punch me in the head? <laughs> I said, said Stozy, that's not the way I remember that. I do remember what he was talking about, though. Um, and he said, he said to me, um, he said, when, when you talk at my funeral, he said, just give him the gospel, punch him in the head with it. That's <laughs> so Matty, so I know. Um, I think what Matty felt in the, in the last parts of his life was not only an urgency about how many days were, were running out for him to be alive on this earth, that gives everyone a sense of urgency, but for Maddie, what was driving that was a sense of urgency about how little time he had left to let other people know about what he had discovered. And in that one statement, I, as I was thinking and reflecting on it, he, he encapsulated for me what this urgency was about, an urgency that I must feel as a Christian, but also an urgency that we all must realise that we just do not know. We do not know the day when others will gather around to say goodbye beside our coffin. Or we do not know the day 
that one day Jesus will just appear and he will say, it's time to come home. And then it will no longer be a favourable time and no longer be a day of salvation for those that have rejected him. So this morning I challenge you, no matter who you are and how you walk through this door, there is a simplicity to our salvation and we're meant to marvel at it. There's a sufficiency to it. It's enough. We just need the man on the middle cross. We just need to say and hear, yes, you'll be with me in paradise today. That's enough. But that, that carries with it an urgency for us, doesn't it? Let's, let's let people know. And if you don't know it, and today's the day, then today is the favourable time, and today is the day of salvation. You simply call out, Lord, remember me. Remember me. I need you. I'd love to talk with you more about that. As would anyone in this room who knows Jesus, someone that you know from this church. I'm going to sit down the front here, and after we finish our next song, closing song, please stand up from your chair. Don't walk back up there to make yourself a cup of tea. Don't go get a biscuit. There are more important things that you need to deal with first. And then we can have Christian fellowship over coffee, tea and biscuits, all you like. But come and deal with God first. Talk with someone now. Now is the favourable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the beautiful illustration that we will all one day stand before you. We must ask ourselves that question. We must give an account on what basis do we find peace with God? Do we find a future and a hope for eternity with him? What are the grounds for our salvation? We thank you for the simplicity and the sufficiency of Jesus. That the man who took our sin and willingly gave us his righteousness said that we could come. Lord, work in the hearts of each of us, we pray. Give us a sense of urgency that now, right now, is the favourable time and right now is the day of salvation. Give us boldness to take the next step, we pray. Amen.